Well, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word, His gift to us, uh, 1 Kings chapter 13, and we'll look at the whole chapter, though we will read slightly less than the whole chapter. 1 Kings 13, one of the more enigmatic passages of the Old Testament. Um, let's, uh, let's look at God's Word together. 1 Kings 13, verse 1 and following. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes uh, that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give, uh, give you a reward. The man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way and the man of God who, uh, that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water here, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. The donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Now jump to verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not 
uh, did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of revelation. We thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a speaking God and that you dispel our ignorance and darkness through the light of your word. Heavenly Father, we confess that we do not cherish your word and tremble with reverence at its teaching the way that we should. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes through your Holy Spirit to see wonderful things in your word this morning and every time we open it. We pray that we would stand in awe of your glory and goodness as it is revealed in Scripture. Father, we pray that this morning you would not simply stimulate our minds. We pray that your word would grip our hearts and change the trajectory of our lives in a manner, Lord, that brings us into increasing conformity with your will. Father, bless the proclamation of your word this morning. Use it to exalt your name and bless your people, we ask. Amen. So if you had to make a, a recipe uh, that included all of the necessary ingredients for happiness, what would those ingredients be? These are the things that you need if you're going to live a happy life, a good life, a blessed life. What would be on your list? And as you think about it, you might include things like good friends, meaningful work, health, uh, but not many people would think to include on their list Scripture. And yet this is exactly what God's Word teaches us to include on our list. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man, and the word blessed here could be translated happy, so long as we understand that the happiness is in view is not dependent on circumstances, but is something deeper, something anchored in the eternal truth of God and His character. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice that from a biblical standpoint, the word of God is a crucial ingredient in the good life, the happy life. To be perpetually in the presence of the Lord in his word is to be happy. And so we, this passage uh, makes several significant affirmations about that word, about that uh, divine self-disclosure, God's revelation to us in Scripture. And this morning we will note four things about God's word. Number one, the triumph of the word, the triumph of God's word. Number two, the supremacy of God's word, the supremacy of God's word. Three, the reliability of God's word, the reliability of God's word. And finally, the word and worship, the word and worship. So the triumph of God's word. Uh, the context, you will recall, is Jeroboam, king of the northern tribes. There's been a split in Israel. Uh, the southern tribe of Judah is now ruled by Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and the northern tribes are ruled by Jeroboam. And we saw last week that there is not simply a political split between the two kingdoms, there's also a spiritual split. 
Jeroboam is insecure and worried that if his subjects go and worship in Rehoboam's kingdom in Jerusalem, the way the Mosaic law commands, um, if that happens, he's going to lose power over his subjects. So he invents his own religion, golden calves. Uh, we're going to do it this way now, now to prevent his people from going to Jerusalem. And essentially, it's a man-made religion. Instead of submitting to God's blueprint for worship, which we have in the Mosaic Law, they had in the Mosaic Law, he's going to devise his own religion. Saw that last week. Now the question becomes, how will God address this? We've seen Jeroboam's move, introducing idolatry and false worship into Israel. Now what's God's uh, move? What is he going to do about this? So, We find Jeroboam by his altar in Bethel getting ready to worship his golden calf. And God sends a prophet, a spokesperson from Judah, the mouthpiece of the Lord. And what is the prophet's message? It's directed intriguingly not in the first instance to Jeroboam himself, but to the altar. Leaving open the question that there, there might still be an opportunity for Jeroboam to repent, which as we'll see he doesn't do. But the man of God, unnamed in this passage, says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born of the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Altar, which is of course a symbol of this false religion that's been instituted, God's judgment will fall on this whole thing. A king from the line of David by the name of Josiah, who will come three centuries later. You can read all about it in 2 Kings 23. It's fascinating how the details match up. That king will come, and he will bring this whole idolatrous edifice uh, down. The bones of the dead will be offered on on the altar to desecrate the altar. This religion will receive God's judgment. And so it is with false religion. God stands against all false religion, all idolatrous worship, all paths to God outside of Jesus Christ result not in divine blessing, but in his judgment. So it's a word of judgment, a word of condemnation upon this newly hatched religion in Israel. And in addition, there is a confirming sign which the prophet gives. He says that the altar is going to be split, And the ashes will fall off the altar to confirm that the word of the Lord will indeed come to pass. That's God's word through his messenger to the king. Now, how does the king respond? Get him. Seize him. There's a royal command. Silence him. The messenger of God and the message of God must be silenced. And here, the, the state in the person of the king rises up in opposition against the word of the Lord. It's a showdown between the king and the prophet. But of course, the prophet is, humanly speaking, all on his own, and the king is backed up by the power of the state. Seize him. But we quickly see what we perhaps don't expect to see, the impotence of the king. When he reaches out his hand to command, seize him, he finds that it stiffens and he's unable to retract it. What do we do? The sign that the prophet said would happen happens. The altar shatters, the ash falls to the ground. And notice that the king 
goes from commanding to entreating, goes from commanding to politely requesting, sees him, gives way to entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. The king stands up against the man of God and the message of God, and it's the king who proves to be impotent. He cannot silence the word of God, neither can he thwart its fulfillment. God does what he pleases in heaven and on earth, and the kings of earth and all of their power and greatness cannot thwart the word of the Lord. The state, human government, the king, cannot finally silence the word of the Lord, much as they might want to. Proverbs says, 30, verses 29 through 31, three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. There's a majesty when you see the king and his army, terrible, with banners flying. And yet even the king in all of his splendor and stateliness can't contend with the word of the Lord. We see this in Acts chapter 12 as well. You may recall this account. Uh, Herod decides that he is going to oppose the early Christian community, the church. And he imprisons one of its leaders, Peter. And he's going, it seems, to execute Peter to appease the Jews. And God miraculously intervenes and plucks Peter out of prison. And then we're told later that Herod uh, gives an oration, a speech in front of adoring crowds. And they say, this is a voice, not of a man, but of a God. And Herod says, yes, uh, all you say is true. And we're told, Acts 12, 23 to 24, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Here is this powerful enemy of the gospel of God's word standing up and imprisoning uh, leaders in the early church, and he tumbles and falls, but the word of the Lord keeps going and multiplying and going from strength to strength. And this is because our Lord, who conquered death and now reigns supreme at the right hand of God, Lord of lords and King of kings, it is his will, which he will accomplish, that he will build his church. He will draw a people for himself, for his glory and that of the Father. And that means that the word of God, the gospel, the good news about the Son's death and resurrection will never be decisively silenced might be silenced here or there temporarily, but the gospel, the good news about Jesus, will go out into all the world. It will be heard, and Jesus will build his church and draw his people. And even the government and the state, when it feels threatened by that message, as Jeroboam did, will fail to silence that message. The word of God will go out, and it will triumph, and Christ will build his church the hardened opposition of human government notwithstanding. That's the perspective we need to have. The word of the Lord will triumph. And that means that given the fact that no obstacle can stand in its way, there should be a level of confidence that we have in sharing it with others. This is the Lord's instrument in bringing people to himself. 
Not even the determined opposition of the state can silence the word of God or thwart its fulfillment. And in the same way, just as the state cannot silence the word of God and keep it from being fulfilled, the state cannot separate us from Jesus Christ, regardless of the opposition that we may experience and our brothers and sisters experience even more acutely in other parts of the world. Paul writes in Romans 8, 35 through 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, state-sanctioned opposition to the church, or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The state can take many things away and make life very uncomfortable and indeed painful, but the state can't take away the, the, the one thing that we most need and the one thing that we must have, which is Jesus Christ and eternal life in him. No human, no human institution has the power to do that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you believe that, you won't be readily threatened even by what you perceive to be reversals in the culture and, or in government that, that don't go your way. Now, before moving on, I do want to clarify. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the government is intrinsically evil. That would be wrong to say. You read Romans 13, and Paul says very clearly that state officials who punish the wicked and promote you know, righteousness and justice are servants of the Lord. It's a good thing that we have uh, responsible state officials who promote righteousness and justice and oppose evil. Uh, and and it's, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that we should pray for good government where we can lead peaceful, uh, quiet, and godly lives where we have the freedom to worship God according to the teaching of Scripture. And to the extent that we have those liberties, we should give thanks to God. So we don't ever want to say that government is intrinsically evil, but it is often the case that the state is threatened by the word of God, just as happens with Jeroboam and opposes the word of God. And when that happens, we need to be confident, knowing that the state is impotent before the word of the Lord. It can't stop it from progressing. It can't silence it. The word of the Lord will be accomplished, and God will preserve us in the face of whatever opposition and persecution we face. That needs to be a source of encouragement and confidence for the people of God. So we see then, in the first instance, the triumph of the word, the certain triumph of God's word. You've got to re remind yourself of that when you, when you read the news, look at the world. Start there. Uh, what does Luther's hymn say? God has willed for his truth to triumph through us. And so he has. Start there and then read the, the morning news, if, if you must, if you must. Um, now, we see, after the hand is restored, that there's another dimension to the prophet's task that we weren't aware of. The king, perhaps because he's thrilled by the fact that his hand, he can use his hand again, maybe he's grateful to the prophet, whatever his motive, he says, why don't you come to my house, refresh yourself, eat a little bit, uh, and I'll give you a reward, a royal reward, pleasure, treasure, right, money. This is an enticing invitation, I suspect, except that the prophet can't accept the invitation. Why? Because the other part of his commission from God is, you're not going to eat there, you're not going to drink there, and you're going to actually come back to Judah by a different way. Don't eat with them. Why? Now, perhaps because this is, is intended to protect his autonomy, the prophet of the Lord can't be bribed or bought, maybe. Perhaps it's more likely that um, 
this communicates the, the, the rupture in the relationship between Judah and the northern tribes. There's a spiritual as well as political rupture. The prophet is not to eat with the king. Well, whatever the reason, whatever the reason, and we're not told, so that's not of first importance in the text, the prophet says, no, can't do it. I suspect it would have been tempting. Again, the promise of pleasure, treasure. But he says, no, no, I know what the word of the Lord has said, and I'm not compromising. So it's very interesting that we see in this prophet a dogged commitment to obeying scripture. Not going to be led astray, I'm going to hold to the word of God. Which makes everything that happens all the more weird, and sort of perplexing. And this is the point in the story where things do become, as I said earlier, a little enigmatic, a little puzzling. All of a sudden, there's this old prophet who lives in Bethel who enters the picture. And questions immediately begin to proliferate, right? Uh, Why is it that he wants to bring the man of God back to his house so, you know, so earnestly? Is it that he just wants to spend time with the man of God? Is it that he's trying to get, uh, protect himself against the curse that has just been altered, uh, that has been uttered against the altar? Uh, There are actually details in the text that suggest that this might in fact be what's, you know, what, what is happening here. But in any case, there's an old prophet who shows up, uh, follows the man of God on a donkey, and finds him just sitting there, and he says, hey, come over, eat with me, drink with me, let's uh, refresh yourself a little bit before heading to Judah. And the man of God gives him the same answer that he gave to Jeroboam, the same answer he gave to the king, I can't, the Lord won't let me, the Lord told me I have a very clear mission, I need to come, deliver the message, don't eat, don't drink, go back. That's what God has said, that's what I'm going to do. Dogged insistence. What does the old prophet do? Actually, there's a new word of the Lord. It's Mormon. Uh, sorry. Uh, th- there's more revelation. Uh, you know, tablets have been discovered. I don't know. Um, so, what, what he says is that an angel has come to him and given him subsequent revelation from God that actually reverses the initial revelation. Uh, don't do that. After all, the angel of the Lord to- is telling you to do something else, namely come and eat with me. But he lied to him. It's a prophet lying to this man of God, and he deceives him. You wonder why, given, ha- given how dogged he is in his obedience, why he would go with this guy. Why doesn't he ask more questions? You know, clear, this, is, this is one place to be suspicious Right? And, and, and sort of interrogate the old prophet's claims, but he doesn't do it for whatever reason. At least it's not recorded. So they go together to the old prophet's house. They're dining together. All is well with the world until the, the old prophet gets a real word from the Lord, not a lie this time. And he says, because you didn't obey the word of God, you're going to die and you're not going to be buried in your field, in the you know, uh, grave of your ancestors. I, I wish we knew how the man of God responded did he stop chewing? Did he get angry? Uh, a little more detail, I think, would have been interesting, if not necessary. Uh, in any, any case, he goes on and dies, and we'll consider that in a moment. But here's what's intriguing. The prophet's lie accomplished what the king's reward could not. Like, faced with the promise of money and pleasure, the man of God remains loyal to the word of the Lord. I'm not going to go that way. I know what God has told me. I'm not going to be seduced by pleasure. I'm going to obey God. Well and good. So what trips him up? 
Well, it's not direct temptation, is it? The thing that trips him up is error, confusion, deception. His mind gets twisted up about God and his will, and because he becomes confused, he sins. I don't think we appreciate, like we need to appreciate, the danger of error and deception to our souls. Eh, if we get it wrong, we'll be okay. You know, what matters is sincerity of heart. Consider the fact, what, what is Satan's original strategy with Eve? Did God really say? What is he doing? He's perverting, twisting the, the word of God. That's what he d- uses. He uses error, deception, and confusion to trip up God's people, even to lead them into sin. So yes, it matters very much that you think rightly and biblically about God, about a, a relationship with him, about walking with the Lord. I, I recently read a book about, uh, by an individual who was making the case that it is always God's will to heal you, which it isn't, to be clear. It's not what scripture teaches, but in the book, the guy was arguing wrongly that it's always God's will to heal you, and if he doesn't, either you don't believe enough or you're using the wrong technique. One or other of those is true. That's according to this guy. Yeah, awful stuff. And in the book, he tells a story of how he persuades a couple who lost a four-year-old child that this wasn't from the Lord, that if we had simply had more faith, applied the right technique, we could have addressed this. Now think about this. Not only do these parents have the grief of losing a child, a four-year-old, right? Hearts are broken. But on top of the ordinary grief that comes with losing a child, that grief is compounded by guilt and even more sadness because perhaps we could have done something to prevent it. Notice how error, wrong thinking about God and wrong expectations about God, sap us of joy, compound guilt, and may even, as we see in the passage, lead us into sin. Right thinking about God matters. It's crucial to the well-being of your soul. We need to cultivate the underrated virtue of discernment. Learning to see past appearances, being so deeply and so well-grounded in our faith that we're not easily blown every which way by every foolish fad. We know who God is, we know what the Christian life is like, we know what prayer is, and so when some book comes along promising to be the, you know, the the secret to a a deep prayer life that no one has ever known for 2,000 years, you roll your eyes because you know where you stand, you know what Scripture teaches, and you're not blown every which way. Discernment is crucial to spiritual health, and we need to cultivate it perhaps more than we do. Careful about those books masquerading as Christian books because they're in a Christian bookstore on a a Christian shelf. Not everything there is from God. Not every lyric on the Christian radio station is aligned with Scripture. Be discerning in your consumption of music, of books, whatever. Now, what's the basic problem here with the the man of God's response? Well, the, the central issue is that instead of allowing the word of the Lord to sit in judgment on the prophet's word, it's the lying prophet's word that sits in judgment on the word of God. This is the opposite of what scripture teaches. If there's a prophet, 
you test him according to the revelation you already have. And if it's not in alignment with that revelation, it doesn't matter if he can produce miracles, you don't believe him because it's the word of the Lord that tests every other word and never the opposite. It's always the word of the Lord that stands in judgment on all other authorities and never other authorities that stand in judgment on the word of the Lord. Recently, I heard an account, uh, this is something that the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia would tell the story. He said that when he was, I guess, in high school, he had this English teacher, a Jesuit priest, back east, and there was, he remembers one class where there was this wise guy making jokes about Hamlet, I think was the play they were reading. And at one point in the class, the the English teacher turns to the wise guy and he says, Son, when you're reading Shakespeare, Shakespeare's not on trial, you are. It's a great line. Uh, What he means is, Shakespeare's excellence has been established. Your your taste and and your judgment hasn't been established. Shakespeare sits in judgment on you. You don't sit in judgment on Shakespeare. Scripture sits in judgment on us and on every other human authority. We don't sit in judgment on Scripture. It's not that Scripture is brought into the courtroom of human reason and science or whatever and has to give an account itself to human learning. It's that human learning, science, philosophy, comes into the courtroom of Scripture and ought to give an account of itself to God's Word. When we have to choose between conflicting authorities... We submit to the supreme authority of Scripture, and that is the word that evaluates every other word and never the other way around. That was the prophet's failure. Instead of testing everything by the word that he knew was from the Lord, he ultimately ultimately allows the word of this lying prophet to cause them to reject the word of God. Now, in principle, we see that clearly, but in practice, it's harder to work out. How do we sometimes act contrary to this principle in practice? Well, one way uh, that I've seen is, is when someone elevates their feelings to the status of revelation and whatever, whatever deep internal pressure they feel is the word of God. Right? This is what God is telling me to do. How do you know? Because I just know God's speaking to me. It's hard to reason with someone like this, right? Because you open scripture and you say, well, look, scripture says the opposite of what your internal pressure is suggesting. Uh, nope. I know what God has said, right? And so what's, what's happening is that your inner life, your subjectivity is being elevated to an alternative source that controls scripture rather than the reverse. Another example is the way people allow experience to muzzle scripture. You know, it's, it's the person who says, you know what? Gathered worship on Sunday just doesn't do much for me. Songs are okay. I don't feel that edified. Preaching's less than okay. Not particularly edifying. It just doesn't do anything for me. But I'll tell you what, when I go and have a cappuccino with my friend on Sunday morning, we talk about the Bible, we get into it, man, I'm edified and I'm whistling as I get out there. Like, that's just much more meaningful to me, so I lean that way. Notice what's happening. Experience trumps the the clear teaching of Scripture, which says, gather with the saints. Hebrews 10, don't neglect the gathering of God's people. 1 Corinthians 11, when you gather together, with the implication that this is what you do regularly. Take the Lord's Supper together, hear God's word, fellowship, encourage each other. Whether you feel particularly edified or not is in one sense irrelevant. 
You do it because this is the divine blueprint. God tells you it's good for you, and you're confident it's good for you, and so you do it. And some Sundays your heart soars, and some Sundays it's, it, perhaps it doesn't, but it's okay because this is what the word of the Lord says. It is the supreme authority. And if it says it's good for me, I believe it's good for me, whether or not my experience always confirms the fact. The word of the Lord ought to be supreme, and it's that word that tests every other word. Well, that, the judgment upon the, the man from Judah is grim. You're not going to be, you're going to die, and you're not going to be buried in your ancestral grave, which was a disgrace, dishonor. Sure enough, the prophet starts to head to Judah, and he's mauled by a lion. He's killed because of his disobedience. And he, there you have, standing on the side of the road, a donkey, a corpse, and a lion. The lion doesn't eat the corpse or attack the donkey. And people take no. It's a miracle. And they begin to say in the city, hey, there's a corpse here. Uh, now, one of the enigmatic things about this text is why there's so much emphasis on the body, on his bones. If you the passage I read talks about his bones and how his body's picked up and put on a donkey. Surely it would have been enough to, he, to say he died to make the point that he disobeyed God's word and he was judged. Why all the emphasis on the body? The old prophet goes and picks up the corpse and puts it on the donkey and brings it home, and I'm going to put his body into my tomb so that our bones can mingle together? What's going on? And uh, I think part of the explanation is that the judgment upon the prophet was not simply that he would die, but that his corpse would be entombed in a foreign grave, that he would die far from the land of his birth. And that, the details emphasize that point, among other things. And what becomes evident as we look at the prophet is that it's never a small thing to disregard and disobey the word of the Lord. It's always costly and bitter. Sin is hard and painful. It seduces us. It tells us that there's going to be pleasure and delight. And then you can just repent really quickly and everything will be well. But sin takes us much further and deeper than we ever thought we would go. Sin ultimately kills us and separates us from God. And so we see the prophet's demise, the fact that he's cut off from his home, exiled forever in a foreign grave, as an indication of, this, of the destruction that we experience when we disregard the word of the Lord. When sin tempts you and it hisses pleasantly in your ear, this is no big deal. Remember the prophet. Sin is always far more bitter than you think at the moment of temptation. So the body is brought back. The old prophet mourns over him. And then note this, verse 31. Here we see the reliability of God's word. Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Why? Verse 32, for the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria, shall surely come to pass. Okay, so what's the logic here? I don't think he means put my bones with his bones, my body with his body, to honor him. Do you remember the curse pronounced on the altar? There are going to be human bones that are burned on this altar to desecrate it. And what the old prophet seems to be saying is, I don't want those bones to be my bones. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I don't want those bones to be my bones. And if, I'm, if my bones touch the prophet's bones, then they won't be disturbed. 
Interestingly, if you go to 2 Kings 23, that's what happens. As they look for bones to put on the altar, they don't take his bones because they're connected to the prophets. Uh, There's more going on here uh, than we have time to consider. But I do want you just to see this. This passage distinguishes between a flawed messenger and a flawless message. The man from Judah, the prophet of the Lord, messes up. He gets it wrong. He disobeys and is judged. But, as we're told in verse 32, the word that he pronounced will certainly come to pass. Now, this distinction is crucial, especially for those of you who may have been disillusioned by a Christian leader or pastor who failed to live the way that he ought to have lived. Perhaps not a pastor, just a spiritual, spiritually mature person in your life. The Bible says very clearly that our lifestyle ought to be aligned with our message, that our lifestyle ought to adorn the gospel, make it attractive to people. And praise be to God that in many Christian lives, that's what's happening. Many ministries, many pastors, that's what's happening. But regrettably, it also happens that men that we trust and love, that we may have put perhaps too much confidence in, when they fall into sin, when they fall short of the message they proclaim, it's easy to become disillusioned, not simply with the man, but also with the message. And if that's you, if you've been burned in the past, make sure that you are making that distinction. Yes, men will fail you. Pastors will fail you. Jesus will never fail you, and his word will never fail you. So just because you've been burned by a human leader, if they were preaching the truth of God according to Scripture, don't be disillusioned with the message. You can have a flawed messenger and a flawless message. Make sure that you're not disillusioned with both. It's the distinction between the man's message and his failing to obey the word of the Lord. Finally, notice the relationship between the word and worship. Jeroboam doesn't finally repent, and so judgment is pronounced on him. He, he and his line will be cut off, will be destroyed from the face of the earth. Uh, Jeroboam does the opposite of what God's king should do. He leads the people of God into false religion. Instead of submitting to the word of God, which describes how God should be worshipped, he makes up his own religion, and, and he sets the terms for worship does the opposite of what God's king should do. But there is an indication at the very beginning of this passage that God will raise up a king after his own heart, Josiah, something like 300 years later. Because he loves the Lord, he hates false religion, and he will bring down God's judgment on paganism and idolatry in Israel. He will purge idolatry from Israel. This is Josiah. The mark of God's true king is that he is zealous for the worship of the Lord, for the house of the Lord, for the right worship of the Lord. We see this with David. He brings the ark into Jerusalem, rejoicing before the Lord. We see this with Solomon. He builds a temple for the Lord. We see it with Josiah. The scourge of false religion brings down God's judgment on the altars and on the pagan priests. And we see this supremely in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. David says of himself in Psalm 69, that zeal for your house will consume me. That same text is applied to Jesus in John 2. Zeal for your house will consume me as Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers in the temple. As he challenges the distortion of the worship of God, we see that he's God's true king whose heart beats to see God worship rightly and glorified by his people. And he is the one who lays his hand, as it were, on God and his people and brings them together. 
The zeal of Jesus Christ is to redeem a sinful humanity through his death and resurrection, washing them of their sins, that they might enter in the holy presence of God, pure and spotless, and to worship him as they ought. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Through God's ultimate and final king, he is the one who brings us into the presence of God, washed of our sins. And when we come before God in the name and the authority of Jesus, we worship rightly. How is it that we worship God rightly? By always coming into his presence, not on the basis of any intrinsic goodness, but resting entirely on the finished work of his son, we come in the name of Jesus. And when we do that, we can know that we are entering into God's presence and worshiping him the way we ought to worship. God's ultimate king and true king is the one that banishes idolatry from the people of God and brings us into God's presence that we might worship him as we ought, according to his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that your word would shape our thinking, feeling, and doing. We pray that Jesus Christ would be at the center of our lives and that, Lord, we would reflect back to you your glory as we submit to your word. Father, please teach us to cherish Scripture better than we do. And please grant that whatever errors continue to plague us would be increasingly corrected by your word. Amen.